Marcus Paul, almost a public figure. Marcus Paul in the morning. Marcus Paul in the morning. Marcus Paul in the mornings, right across Australia. On the iHeartRadio and TuneIn Radio apps. The biggest issues. The biggest guess. Marcus Paul in the morning starts now. All right, good morning and welcome to Monday. Nice to have you company. Let's get into it. A brand new working week right around Australia here on starterfm.com.au, on the iHeartRadio platform and, of course, on TuneIn. We're here between 7 and 9 Australian Eastern Standard Time, Monday to Friday. And later up on the podcast, don't forget we, we kicked off our YouTube channel over the weekend as well. Marcus Paul in the morning. Please give us a uh, subscribe uh, look, the videos, they will get better. Um, and, you know, eventually we'll, we'll start putting edits in and all the rest of it. Now it'll just uh, be uh, program content from the show here, which is pretty much what we do anyway, um, primarily. Uh, Marcus Paul in the Morning is a, is a radio program, um, but I've been encouraged by many uh, to, to get onto YouTube and start filming what we do. Okay, face for radio, as they say. All right, our hotline number 0406521250 if you would like to have your say. My take on the weekend's news is coming up as we get into a new week. The latest on the leadership for the Liberal Party today, uh, Peter Dutton, probably unopposed, will be elected as Liberal leader. The Nationals, well, someone threw a spanner in the works over the weekend. Two people have now put their hand up to challenge Barnaby Joyce. Although, um, I don't believe that Little Proud or Chester will get the nod ahead of old Beetroot, considering, let's face it, the Nationals did okay at the election. They certainly didn't lose any seats. Unlike the Liberals, who are cooked. Yep, according to a very senior Liberal senator, and I'll get into the story in a couple of moments, on the weekend he unloaded in the press saying that things need to dramatically change for the Liberals to remain relevant and return to the political power that they once were. Uh, Victoria and New South Wales were shocking for the Liberals in the recent federal election. Um, Victoria in particular, they not only lost two seats to Labor, but they lost two seats to the Teal Independents. Queensland is where they fared the best Anyway, um, there's discussions about how they can improve their campaigning, number one, but also stop the infighting between factions um, and also stop this ridiculous notion of, you know, 11th hour decisions being made on election candidates. I mean, that abs- in New South Wales alone, that absolutely cost the Liberal Parliamentary Party um, a lot of damage. Anyway, we'll get into that story as well. Some wonderful news regarding an island. It used to be known as Goat Island. Memel is now what it's called. It's an Aboriginal heritage island and it's being handed back to Indigenous Australians. Um, that process began over the weekend. I'll talk about that story for you a little later this morning as well. Um, they've been, uh, well, a few biopics most recently. Uh, the Queen one featuring Freddie Mercury. That was brilliant. I love that. 
I wasn't too keen on the Elton John one, but it was passable. But there's a new one that is Australian made by Aussie director Baz Luhrmann. And by all accounts, it, it looks pretty good. It includes the Hollywood power of actor Tom Hanks. It is the story of Elvis Presley. It has its premiere this week. And look, the production on the Gold Coast injected uh, in excess of $100 billion into the local community, which is great news. Anyway, I'll talk about that a little later as we get into a bit of arts and entertainment. New South Wales school students are apparently dealing with mental health issues. There is a a new portal, um, a new resource that will be provided for school teachers in the state of New South Wales in which they can access and then provide information and advice to their students who are still suffering after the recent uh, COVID-19 pandemic lockdowns. I'll talk about that story for you as well. Now, what else have we got for you? Oh, great music as always. We'll catch up with the latest. We'll keep you in touch with the latest news thanks to Air News right around Australia. And we'll also look at this disturbing story from the weekend on ambulance ramping in New South Wales. Uh, I, I don't mean to be flippant, but it's, well, it's rampant. It is. Uh, ramping is where an ambulance cannot get its patient inside the emergency department because, well, they're too damn busy. So it means that the resource, that is the paramedics, are stuck ramps in the uh, emergency department's driveway with their uh, patients in the back of the ambo. It means they can't attend other urgent jobs. And apparently um, it's gotten out of control here in New South Wales. There is a, a recent survey, and it's not just in New South Wales. Ambulance ramping happens all around the country. But in particular, in New South Wales, it's getting to the stage where three quarters of AMBOs say that they can't cope anymore. I'll tell you about the latest study and survey by the Paramedics Association of Australia. So all that coming up on this morning's program. Thank you for being with us. This is Marcus Paul in the morning. Monday morning, great to have you company. The 29th day of May, we're we're getting closer, of course, to winter. I hope you had a great weekend. As I mentioned yesterday on the YouTube video, the Coalition's most experienced campaigner, Senator James McGrath, says the Liberals are cooked and in need of total reform. (laughs) Unlike a ScoMo chicken curry, they are cooked. It all came as a second MP announced a challenge to Nationals leader Barnaby Joyce over the weekend. Anyway, back to Senator James McGrath. We know he was re-elected last week as the head of the LNP's ticket. He is the coalition MP with the most experience running political campaigns. And he's hit out at the cooked state of the Liberal Party, warning the broken state of its structure poses a greater threat to the coalition than policy divisions do. Now, before entering Parliament, this bloke was at various times Deputy Director of the Liberal Party federally, Campaign Director for the LNP in Queensland and Campaign Director for the Country Liberal Party in Northern, in the Northern Territory. Look, he's conservative to his bootstraps. He also worked on election campaigns for the Conservative Party in the United Kingdom. Uh, the Senator told the newspapers yesterday, in his opinion, the biggest issue facing Peter Dutton isn't net zero, the biggest issue facing 
the incoming leader, Peter Dutton, who will be announced today unopposed as the leader of the Federal Liberal Party. The biggest issue that he faces is the cooked state of the Liberal Party. Now, the Liberals did well in Queensland, and in contrast to Queensland, where the LNP retained 21 out of 23 seats, it held to remain overwhelmingly dominant in a state with only well, with 29 seats. The Coalition, though, holds a minority of seats in Victoria and New South Wales. In Victoria in particular, they were smashed. So there's widespread anger across the Liberal Party in other states at the dysfunctional way New South Wales handled their pre-selections with winnable seats left without candidates until almost the start of the election. I spoke about this on the program uh, just a couple of weeks ago. They left it to the 11th hour. Numerous divisions are beset by factional warfare, according to the Senator. There are weird policy priorities, ageing members, spiv warlords, whatever the hell they are, and a dying local campaign structure. Now, the situation in Victoria, as I mentioned, is even more dire, with the Liberal Party reduced to eight, only eight, out of 39 seats, after losing two seats to the Teals and two to the Labor Party during the election. They went down four seats. The number one priority must be a reform of our campaigning capability from the ground up, according to Senator McGrath. His intervention comes ahead of, of course, today's meetings of returning coalition MPs in Canberra to decide the Liberal and National Party leadership. At the meeting of the Liberal Party MPs today, Queenslander Peter Dutton is expected to be elected unopposed as leader, with New South Wales MP Susan Lee as his deputy. But National Party leader Barnaby Joyce, meanwhile, is also facing a challenge from Deputy Leader David Littleproud. He announced over the weekend on Saturday that he would nominate and Victorian MP Darren Chester, who was dumped as a minister when Joyce returned to the leadership in 2021. So, it's a three-way race. David Littleproud, Darren Chester and the incumbent Barnaby Joyce. Now, few national MPs who spoke to the media before Mr Littleproud nominated expected Mr Joyce to lose his job to Mr Chester because the National Party retained all of its seats at the election. Look, I mentioned yesterday, uh, I would, uh, I consider it highly unlikely that Barnaby Joyce will lose the leadership considering, as mentioned, um, the Nationals didn't lose any seats during the election of last week. Anyway, some also suspected that Darren Chester was running in the hope of flushing out another candidate. I guess we'll have to watch this space so far as the Nationals are concerned. Marcus Paul in the morning. All right, welcome back on this Monday morning. Marcus Paul in the morning, live on Starter FM. Uh, of course, we stream between 7 and 9 each Monday to Friday, and you'll find us as well on YouTube, Facebook, and later on our podcast platform for this program anyway, uh, what we like to call the Prawncast. Well, I see over the weekend the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, conceded the Labor Party does have lessons to learn from its humiliating defeats in the once-safe southwest Sydney seat of Fowler. Uh, we know what happened here. Um, you know, the very capable Christina Keneally was parachuted in from Pitwater, Scotland Island to Cabramatta Creek. 
<laughs> effectively out there in uh, southwestern Sydney, the seat of Fowler, which takes in areas like Cabramatta, Fairfield. In the lead up to the federal poll, then frontbencher Christina Keneally was, as I say, controversially parachuted into a, a very multicultural seat. And that had been held by the Labor Party since 1984. So it was a safe seat. You know, nothing marginal about it. But we know that independent local candidate Di Lee managed to overturn Labor's 14% margin to secure the shock victory. And it was a shock over the former New South Wales Premier, saying that the ALP had paid the price for its so-called arrogant decision to relocate Miss Keneally from the Northern Beaches to South West Sydney. Now, Yesterday, Albo told Sky News that the ALP was closely examining what went wrong. Here's a couple of quotes. He said, you have to learn lessons from an outcome like that. I think the lessons are very clear that the community sent a message. Christina Keneally is a big loss to our team. She was a valued friend. She was the deputy Senate leader and it is a loss. But you have to accept outcomes in democratic processes. But you also have to learn from them. And Albo concluded by saying we will take note of the lessons which are there. All right, well, <laughs> I hope they do. And I don't know, will Christina Keneally, will that be it for her? Is that her political career done and dusted? I'm not quite sure. I still think she has a lot to offer because I think she is a, uh, a good campaigner. Uh, and a very, she was great in the Senate. She really was. All right, uh, also making news over the weekends, Katie Gallagher, the incoming finance minister, she was interviewed yesterday on the Insiders program and there was a question to her about the fuel excise. I mean, we know that the 22 cent fuel excise only was lasting six months and that means it will end in September and then bang, the price will head straight back up. I mean, we're already paying a ridiculous price at the moment. What are you paying for petrol? It's outrageous. Anyway, uh, Senator Galla Gallagher said the fuel excise cut costs around $3 billion over that six-month period. So it, it will have a, a, a massive cost, a high cost to the budget. There's no doubt about that. She said yesterday on The Insiders, we said before the budget that it was unlikely we would continue that cut beyond the end of September. And I think that remains the case. Uh, that's what we said before the election, and that's what we've said afterwards, quote, unquote. Yeah. All right, well, um, I can't imagine them tweaking it or changing it at the end of September, and uh, all we can hope is, of course, that things stabilise in Ukraine, in Europe, and that the price of oil goes down. Otherwise, you know, the, the cost of living expenses will continue to skyrocket, being led by expensive petrol prices. And as we know, uh, the more expensive the petrol, more expensive freights and logistics, which leads to higher inflation. Uh, also over the weekend, Anthony Albanese, during an interview, said that he wouldn't underestimate uh, the incoming new federal leader. As I mentioned uh, on the program, Peter Dutton uh, will be elected today, no doubt unopposed as leader of the Liberals. Um, Albo says he won't underestimate his opponent. 
Dutton looks set to take over from ScoMo as the next leader of the Liberal Party today, with former Environment Minister Susan Lee shaping up as the front-runner to take on the deputy's position. Now, he was on Sky News. Very brave of you, Albo. Anyway, he was asked whether there's a chance Labor could dismiss Mr Dutton as a political adversary, and Albo said yesterday... I never underestimate my opponents. During the campaign, you might have heard me say that I've been underestimating my whole life. I think there are some people who are just regretting underestimating me over the past three years. So, yeah, having a, a little bit of a, a crack there at the former government. Anyway, if you'd like to have your say on those issues, uh, you can send us uh, an email if you like. Uh, marcus.paul at starterfm.com.au and of course as always on the Facebook page that's where we get most of your comments from for the program Monday morning welcome back to the program we're almost into winter it's the 30th day of May today Marcus Paul in the morning please give us a like and uh, follow on uh, all of our social media platforms um, uh, the new YouTube channel as well is up and I'm recording this and it'll be uh, up a little later today. Uh, quick question, have you ever ridden in an ambulance? I have, but many, many years ago when I was a young fella, I had a, an accident on my bike in Western Sydney and ended up uh, having a plate inserted into my arm here. It was very painful, um, but I, I, I was out of it. I was in so much pain. I don't recall the trip to hospital via the ambulance, but uh, over the weekend, I read that um, ambulance response times will cost lives, according to a new survey of paramedics, in particular in New South Wales. Look, ambulance ramping, uh, that's a situation where, um, you know, emergency departments are so full that ambulance crews are stuck uh, basically in the driveway of emergency uh, departments looking after patients because they can't get them into triage, um, of course. And it's a problem right across the country. But 90% of paramedics believe the current crisis in the New South Wales ambulance network is leading to patient deaths due to longer response times and, well, staff being completely and utterly overstretched. Nine out of ten New South Wales paramedics believe the current crisis in the New South Wales ambulance network is leading to patient deaths. I mean, that, that surely is something that should be of great concern to the New South Wales Premier, Dominic Perrottet, and, of course, the Health Minister, Brad Hazard. A survey conducted of more than 700 paramedics, so it's a pretty decent sample size. It was conducted by the Australian Paramedics Association, also found that 40% believe their patients had suffered worse outcomes due to extended response times in the past month or so. The APA, the Australian Paramedics Association's Gary Wilson, he's their secretary, he said the state's ambulance network has now hit status three, its highest emergency response level. And it reaches this response level regularly as paramedics attempted to respond to increasing demands on the overstretched network. Now, I heard that New South Wales AMBOs in particular have not been this busy in their entire history. 
Now, Mr Wilson said we have the worst response time in history, worse than any other state, and delays in response times leads to deaths. If you look at defibrillation, for every minute we delay defibrillating someone who needs it, their survival rate drops by 10%. So a three-minute increase in response times, that's three minutes, there'll be a 30% drop in a patient's survival rate. I mean, when you bring it down to sheer numbers like that, it's uh, it's a little scary. Now, over the past two weeks, um, News Corp's Sunday Telegraph has documented hundreds of ambulances ramp for hours at multiple metropolitan hospitals awaiting admission. Ramping due to bed block prevents paramedics from responding to calls as they tend to patients outside emergency departments. I mean, basically, they're stuck there with their patient in the back of the ambo because they can't get them into triage, into the emergency departments. Now, on Thursday of last week, there were zero zilch, no ambos available in the Illawarra, the Central Coast or Newcastle, and only eight free in the entire city of Sydney, a city of five and a half million people. Industrial action by the APA paramedics over the weekend included not taking billing details from patients in protest of this ongoing crisis. Mr Wilson said we see it day after day. We have photos of hospitals stuck in bed block for hours on end. One in three paramedics in this survey reported they had spent between four and six hours ramped. Four and six hours. That's outside hospitals facing bedlock, and 55% reported they had been ramped for between two and four hours as the state's hospitals struggled to cope with COVID cases, soaring cases of influenza, furloughed staff, and overwhelmed emergency departments. Now, this survey also revealed 67% of paramedics had done forced end-of-shift overtime in the past month. The system is under-resourced, and these statistics reinforce what they've told the government, that they are in New South Wales, some 1,500 paramedics behind Queensland and Victoria on a per capita basis, and they're struggling with the ongoing workload. The system is buckling, and the only thing that's kept it afloat is that paramedics are breaking themselves to look after the community. Alarmingly, as well, three quarters of paramedics reported feeling too tired to drive home safely after work. Figures released in March of this year showed New South Wales Ambulance had the highest amount of responses in the quarter since June uh, since 2010, with 320,729 ambulance responses and almost 9,000 priority cases. Patients with life-threatening conditions were up 32.9% compared to the same period back in 2019. Meanwhile, the Bureau of Health Information quarterly report from March showed the service had hit a five-year low in response times. A spokeswoman for New South Wales AMBOs said the high number of COVID cases had impacted New South Wales Ambulance in a number of ways, including an increase in transport need for cases and staff furloughed due to contracting the virus themselves. Already this year, more than 300 new paramedics have been deployed across the state. That's according to the state government. But 
They say the Omicron-related COVID-19 and recent influenza demand is on top of the normal paramedic workload in the community, which is now largely returned to pre-pandemic life, with an increase in car accidents, assaults, falls and other activity-related call-outs. It's a mess, and it's something the New South Wales government needs to get a hold of as quickly as possible. Marcus Paul in the morning. Okay, welcome back to the program. Don't forget you can now follow us on YouTube, Marcus Paul in the morning. We're there on Facebook where we get most of your feedback from. We're on Twitter, that handle, at Marcus Paul in the morning. Instagram as well, and the Prawncast, which is our podcast. That'll drop a little later in the day. Um, now, something else caught my attention over the weekend. I am an animal lover, as I'm sure most, in fact, I imagine all of my listeners are over the years. I've spoken to the Animal Justice Party's Emma Hurst here in Sydney in New South Wales. Uh, we talked about puppy farming and changes to animal cruelty laws, largely, which have, uh, well, seen some wonderful advancements and improvements, if you like, in the legislation around how people interact with animals, both domestic and wild. But in an exclusive story over the weekends from News Corp, cats and dogs are unwittingly being sold on sites like Gumtree for horrific medical experiments, many of which are, conduct are conducted at our expense, taxpayers' expense. Industry insiders have revealed the unwanted pets, some offered free to good homes and others being sold by unscrupulous backyard breeders, are being spirited off to laboratories for tests, which may leave them dead or scarred for life. The total number of cats and dogs being used in the invasive secret experiments has reached thousands every year around Australia. But the exact number is unknown because the ACT, South Australia, Western Australia and the Northern Territory do not publish reports breaking down animal use in research. In New South Wales, almost 1,000 dogs and 500 cats in 2010 were being kept and used in highly confidential animal experimentation. In Victoria, there were 2,706 domestic dogs, 465 domestic cats, and 436 feral cats used in highly confidential animal experimentation. In Queensland, the stats are just unbelievable. 1,783 domestic dogs, 554 domestic cats, and 782 feral or exotic cats used in highly confidential animal experimentation. And on it goes. The lack of transparency has some extreme consequences for animals being used for experimental purposes. This is from the Animal Justice Party MP Emma Hurst. Emma said over the weekend, it means that many animals will not have a chance to get out of experimentation facilities. They will be born into medical experimentation and they will die there. The New South Wales and ACT branch chair of the Australian Academy of Health and Medical Sciences, Sciences Professor Anthony Cunningham, has agreed at a parliamentary inquiry there should be transparent reporting of the use of animals and the research needs to be regulated at arm's length. Oh dear. There has to be transparent reporting of research as well. 
All researchers have to justify the number of animals that they use, according to the good professor. The revelations about the use of domestic animals come as investigations show a cruel and terrifying swim test, which lets mice flounder in buckets of water until the point of drowning to assess levels of depression. It is still being conducted in several Australian states. That is despite the test now being prohibited by some of the world's biggest drug companies, including Johnson & Johnson, Bayer, GlaxoSmithKline, Roche, AstraZeneca, Pfizer and others. And also by prestigious universities, including King's College in London. The test is no longer allowed in South Australian universities. In separate barbaric experiments, animals are being forced, using restraints, to smoke cigarettes, which often kills them or leaves them sick, injured, maimed and suffering de uh, debilitating nicotine withdrawals. Some of the other uh, awful tests. Cat eye injections. Four cats injected to cause retinal damage. The fates of the cats were unknown, taxpayer-funded experiment. Another 19 cats were injected. Four were killed 30 hours later. A kitten hearing test. 15 kittens deliberately deafened one day after they were born to test a cochlear ear implant and then operated on. They were all then killed. And that's another taxpayer-funded experiment. Unfortunately, I also discovered that Australia has a dark history of clandestine experiments on animals and is one of the highest users of animals in research globally, according to a 2019 report. There is no national reporting system here in Australia for the use of animals in experiments, unlike in Canada, the UK, Europe and New Zealand. Animal rights groups are calling for a national independent oversight body and mandatory release aids for animals subjected to experiments. I think it's high time we do look at doing this. Anyway, Humane Research Australia has previously revealed horrendous experiments including healthy dogs which have undergone heart surgery experiments before being killed, while kittens have been intentionally deafened as I mentioned to test cochlear ear implants. Look, some people will say, of course, that, you know, it's important that we use animals to test drugs, which will then obviously be used on humans. And I get that, but still, some of it is completely and utterly inhumane. The shocking revelations come as a bill has been introduced to the New South Wales State Parliament to give animals the right to be released from laboratories and rehomed instead of being euthanised. Emma Hurst said cats and dogs are often killed instead of being released because there is a fear of backlash if the public finds out what's going on. She said over the weekend these animals are subject to a wide range of invasive and often painful experiments but the details of these experiments are not reported. A spokeswoman for Gumtree said they are not aware of any complaints or reports of animals used for medical or scientific experiments. She said they constantly endeavour to support responsible trading to protect animal welfare. They introduced a mandatory insertion fee within their pet category across all pets and animal listings to discourage casual animal trading taking advantage of the platform. Oh dear. 
Well, I will try and speak to Emma Hurst on the program at some point this week. Marcus Paul in the morning. Yeah, welcome back to the program on this Monday morning. 0406521250 is our hotline. If you want to call it at any time, you can leave a message. We can get back to you or you can basically um, have your say that way. You can even text us if you like to the program. Um, Now, I mentioned last week that we will, unfortunately, as we get into winter in coming days, have a wetter than average winter, uh, pretty much standard, normal for what we've experienced over the last six months, no doubt about that. But you would have thought that months on from Lismore's devastating floods, that people would be getting back to normal. But I saw a story over the weekend from ABC reporter Bronwyn Herbert, who wrote that months on from devastating Lismore floods, 1,300 people are still unable to return home. That's three months on from the devastating floods up there in northern New South Wales in late February. 1,300 people remain in emergency accommodation while less than 20% of businesses are back operating. Losing their home in the flood forced Nathan Rose with his heavily pregnant partner Tina and their seven children... It's a big family. Anyway, they've been forced to camp out in tents on a family property next to the Wilsons River. But when the second flood hit a month later and their baby boy was born prematurely, they moved into two caravans on the farm to accommodate them all. Now, Mr. Rose says it's been a wild ride. Jeez. Seven, eight kids now with the newborn bub living in caravans. No, thank you. Anyway, a donated temporary home installed this week in the backyard of their Lismore home has been a turning point three months since they were made homeless. Now, this bloke, Nathan Rose, says we now have eight children and to be returning to our home soil as well, we're kind of speechless. Resilience New South Wales, they've confirmed... There are still more than 1,300 people in emergency accommodation across the Northern Rivers. Teresa Blackley was renting at a caravan park at South Lismore when the peak of the flood hit. She then moved, not once or twice, but 10 times between different camping sites around the area. She ended up at Korokai downstream of Lismore when the second major flood hit the region late March. She said during the second flood, I had a heart attack and had to be evacuated to the Lismore Base Hospital. But because she's now living in a rental home, not a caravan or a tent, she believes she's one of the lucky ones. Now, Lismore City Council, I see, is proposing a $400 million land swap, enabling people to move from the most flood-prone areas to higher ground. Well, I think this is good news. Lismore Mayor Steve Krieg, who had both his family home and business flooded to the ceiling, believes people smarter than him should be making the big decisions on how to make a land swap work. What's more expensive is continually rebuilding by doing the same things over and over. We've got to do things differently this time around. While there's no question of that, Lismore City Council estimates 250 shops 
are now open across the CBD and industrial estate in South Lismore. Uh, There's progress being made every day, but it's been challenging, not only for businesses and homeowners and renters, but for landlords as well. Adrian Katschke, he's a retired insurance broker. He's been working flat out to refit the two shops that he owns in Lismore's Strand Arcade. He said that one tenant had just moved in and the ice cream chain that was renting his curbside space wasn't returning. He said, sadly, we lost our tenant. Now we have to hang a sign on the wall saying open for lease and just keep our fingers crossed. All this takes time. Anyway, there are some green shoots emerging up there in northern New South Wales. The owners of the city's major shopping centre have confirmed that four of their major retailers will reopen in July. So Woolies and Kmart, and I think there's a target there as well. With the other 70 tenants in various stages of dealing with insurance claims, government grant applications and fit-outs. This was the Lismore Shopping Square As you may recall, it was inundated. Water was basically, I mean, it inundated the car park and went to the roof, for goodness sake. Anyway, uh, the, uh, the thing too is employment, when you think about it. I mean, Lismore Square has been closed for, well, for months and it employs 1,000 people. That's a lot of people whose livelihoods rely on being able to work. Anyway, they are hoping to rebuild bigger and better. We will watch with interest. And, uh, well, look, as I mentioned, with the local council and the idea, of course, that uh, they will have a $400 million land swap deal, hopefully that will enable people to move from the most flood-prone areas to higher ground and never have to deal with the heartbreak of being flooded month on month ever again. We can only hope for their sake. Marcus Paul in the morning. You are with Marcus Paul in the morning here on starterfm.com.au, the iHeartRadio platform. Tune in, and if you're listening back to the Prawncast, as I always say, do me a solid, please give it a share on your social media. And also, any of the YouTube uh, videos that you come across online as well of ours. Now, Kids as young as those in preschool are apparently experiencing depression and other mental health issues exacerbated by the pandemic. But it's hoped a new platform will offer teachers more support options. This story over the weekend. School staff can help their kids' mental health through a new online register. It'll apparently give school staff direct access to support options available for their students. Now, St Mary's Public School Principal Rob Lindis was interviewed by the media over the weekend and said a lack of connection has caused emotional problems in students to spike during COVID. A lack of connection. Uh, Mr Lindis said we are seeing students needing that extra level of support for their emotions in kids as young as the preschool we have on site right through to year six. Increasingly with lockdowns and a lack of connection, we're seeing more anxiety and worry, sadness and depression, and children who are having trouble building positive relationships. We teach the whole child, not just literacy and numeracy, 
We know that learning and well-being go hand in hand. This platform will help us meet our moral purpose and also ease the burden on staff who are having to research these programs. Okay, well, Professor Ian Hickey from the University of Sydney's Brain and Mind Centre said depression showed differently in younger children. The professor told News Corp they're not going to tell you how they're feeling, so it'll show more in their temperament with tummy aches, difficulty settling and that sort of thing. Ages three to five and then early primary school years are critical for learning social skills and connection outside the family home. During COVID, that didn't happen, but there was a fearfulness of contact. So we're seeing a cohort now that is socially and emotionally immature. Yeah, are young children the forgotten victims of the pandemic? Maybe they are. A new online register will connect New South Wales school staff with external providers of vetted evidence-based programs. Education and Early Learning Minister Sarah Mitchell said it would allow teachers and counsellors to provide immediate and ongoing support to students. The minister over the weekend said we are making the process of selecting high-quality student wellbeing programs as simple as possible and helping to reduce the administration burden for our schools. The New South Wales government is committed to continuing to prioritise and invest in supporting the mental health and wellbeing of our students. The minister went on to say, schools play a key role in supporting student wellbeing, which is so vital to the development of children and younger people, both socially and academically. Programs available via the register will be assessed by an expert panel with a focus on positive student behaviour, developing resilience and strengthening belonging. Now, schools will have the ability to directly select and provide feedback on wellbeing programs through the platform. Uh, This is something obviously that's supported by the New South Wales Mental Health Minister, Bronnie Taylor. She said it was part of a continued investment in youth mental health and the program is a game changer, quote unquote. Ms Taylor said over the weekend, the New South Wales government is injecting a record amount of funding into a range of new and innovative mental health and wellbeing initiatives for our young people, like our safeguard teams and school wellbeing nurses. She said... She was pleased that the new register will allow schools to access additional resources more easily. In addition to this, we work closely with a range of organisations such as Headspace and Wellways to deliver suicide prevention programs for young people. So there we go. Uh, What do you make of that? Leave your comments on the Facebook page. Children as young as those in preschool are experiencing mental health issues, but the state government has announced a new register that will give school staff direct access to support options available to help their students. Marcus Paul in the morning. Marcus Paul in the morning. Well, if you follow Rugby League, you'll know we've just finished the Indigenous round, um, which by all accounts went very well. But here's another good news story in relation to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. Sydney Harbour's historic Me Mel Islands is set to be returned to the Aboriginal community for future management and conservation of the land. The official transfer process of the island 
to the Cadigal people began yesterday after the New South Wales government announced $43 million to regenerate and restore Meemel. Metropolitan Local Aboriginal Land Council Deputy Chair Yvonne Weldon said the move will help healing and progress inside Sydney's Aboriginal community. Meemel is a place where we can go to be within our culture, pass culture on to our younger generations and share with other people, Miss Weldon said. Meemel is an opportunity for truth-telling and it's about recognising the past and unlocking the future. Look, Meemel, in case you don't know what it is, it's also known as Goat Island. It is the largest island in Sydney Harbour and marks the start of an Eroa songline, Bura Bitter, uh, Bira, sorry, where the eel spirit created the watercourse known today as Sydney Harbour. I'll just get that right. So it's also known as Goat Island, the largest in Sydney Harbour, marks the start of an Eroa songline, Bura Bira, where the eel spirit created the watercourses known today as Sydney Harbour. Now, the island is located near Darling Harbour, around 600 metres northwest of Balmain East Public Wharf. It's around 300 metres wide and 180 metres long in size. Meemel was once inhabited by Wongul man Benelong and his wife, Barangaroo. Benelong's father was also born on the island. The heritage-listed island, which has a rich array of Aboriginal, historical and natural heritage values, including more than 30 buildings and other structures dating from the 1830s to the 1960s. Now, in 2015, Labor leaders announced a plan to return Meemel to the Aboriginal community if they were elected to government. The island, however, remained New South Wales government property. Minister for Aboriginal Affairs Ben Franklin said a committee will now make recommendations to help determine how the island is used. Mr Franklin said yesterday the Meemel Transfer Committee includes Aboriginal people and New South Wales government agency representatives and importantly is its establishment is supported by the Metropolitan Local Aboriginal Land Council. Now, the $42.9 million funding boost over a four-year period will contribute to upgrade work such as repairing seawalls and buildings and improving wharf access. Meemel is currently managed by the National Parks and Wildlife Service who are calling on people to join the Meemel Transfer Committee through an expression of interest process. Now, the expression of interest nominations are open until the 27th of next month. So that's great news. Sydney Harbour's Meemel Island is to be returned to the Aboriginal community. Marcus Paul in the morning. Okay, welcome back. Marcus Paul in the morning on the 30th day of May. Gee, it was chilly yesterday when I woke up. Those winds were blowing and uh, the temperature had dropped a little from what it was on Saturday, of course. Well, it's all due to a polar blast that hit Australia yesterday, carrying icy weather just in time for the seasonal shift to winter. Winter gets underway this week. Some parts of the country are set to experience their lowest temperatures of the year so far as a cocktail of wintry weather conditions brings rail... Rail? <laughs> That's a mixture, folks, of rain and hail. Rain, hail, 
wind and snow. Weather zone meteorologist Joel Pippard said an Antarctic air mass encroaching on Australia um, in the latter part of last week has collided with two moisture sources pushing northwards towards southern Australia over the weekend. Wow. <laughs> Basically, um, what they're saying is it's going to be cold. Breaking through all of that, there's a high chance of snow falling over the New South Wales and Victorian Alps and the Tasmanian highlands this morning. Uh, May snow usually doesn't stick around until the season opening in June, although that's not too far away. June, the expectation is when it snows heavily in late May, as could happen next Monday and Tuesday. Anyway, uh, let's have a look here. In WA, Western Australia and the South in particular felt the chill on Saturday as parts of the South Coast were blasted with heavy rains, gusty winds and thunderstorms. More rain was set for the Northwest and Pilbara Coast through yesterday Sunday with up to 90 millimetres and isolated totals of 120 millimetres forecast possible in some parts. South Australia, well the Bureau issued a severe weather warning for the southern state through yesterday as damaging wind gusts hit the region. Adelaide, it was chilly there, down to, what, single digits, nine degrees in the early hours of yesterday morning, as many parts of the state experienced the iciest day of the year so far. Um, now, for the next couple of days, South Australians can expect intense rainfall and thunderstorms to start the week. Victoria, uh, well, today you'll cop the worst of it, we're told. Today and tomorrow, gusty showers, strong winds and possible storms will hit the state. Uh, in Melbourne today, it'll be chilly, 7 degrees, lows of 6 degree forecast for Bansdale, or is it Barnsdale, that's how you say it, my apologies, in the west. Alpine blizzards are also very likely to bring another dumping of snow on the mountain regions tomorrow. Severe thunderstorms and damaging wind warnings are anticipated for early next week with possible hail. Now, for New South Wales, an icy cold front carrying rainfall and gale force winds is on its way to inland New South Wales this week. A severe weather warning has been issued by the Bureau of Meteorology for the wintry blast, which will focus on the west as well as the central and southern ranges. Now, according to the Bureau, snow is expected in the Alpine region with a chance of snow around higher parts of the ranges outside of the Alpine region extending as far south as the central tablelands. Now, I thought it was a little windy yesterday, but it kind of died off a bit. But the east coast of New South Wales will be pummeled with strong winds today and well into tomorrow. The coldest temperatures won't hit the capital city, that's Sydney, until Thursday when parts of the state central west, including Dubbo, Coolar and Mudgee, wake up to temperatures of minus one degrees. And it'll be worse elsewhere too. Lithgow, Orange, Bathurst and Crookwell will drop to minus two degrees on Thursday morning, while the coldest part of the state will be Armidale in the northern Tablelands, which is expected to hit a freezing minus three Queensland, uh, Thursday will also be the coldest so far in Queensland as morning temperatures in the south will hit just one degree in Stanthorpe and Applethorpe. As far as Bris Vegas is concerned, well, 
Thursday morning will also be very chilly for Brisbane standards, down to six degrees. And for Tasmania, the polar blast will arrive in the southern state with a bang on well, tomorrow, we're told, and is set to uh, and snow is set to fall as low as 700 metres there in Tassie. Freezing temperatures and potentially damaging winds are forecast for the start of the week, bringing the chance of hail and thunderstorms as well. So there we go. We know that winter isn't too far away. Freezing temperatures, snow falls to lash the east coast ahead of winter's arrival. Rug up, Marcus Paul in the morning. Yeah, thank you for being with us on this Monday morning, the 30th day of May. Marcus Paul in the morning. 04065 is our hotline. You can follow us too on Facebook. Marcus Paul in the morning. Same with YouTube. Our Twitter handle, by the way, at MP in the morning. Well, I mentioned the icy cold weather we're expecting in a number of areas around Australia this week. But I also learned over the weekend that us as consumers could soon be turning to frozen or canned veggies as a plague of calamities besets our country's vegetable industry, leading to shortages of staple produce at the supermarket shelf and accelerating inflationary pressures. That's not good. That's not good. Soaring veggie prices and shortages will see shoppers turn to frozen or canned veggies. Look, I don't mind the frozen veggies so much. Um, oh, I got some in the freezer at home. No. Pull them out no. in the sachet, put them in the microwave, ding. Although they do not taste as fresh or as nice, I think, as, you know, steaming your own fresh veggies. Anyway, uh, the concerns come as equities analysts warn the shortages and pace of price rises of key fresh food, fresh food that is, led by fruit and veggies, could get worse this year as the problems behind soaring inflation show no sign of abating. It is feeding into an inflationary spiral that has already seen the pace of fresh food inflation outpace that of dried grocery goods, added to the cost of living for households, and in turn place further pressure on the Reserve Bank to enter a prolonged period of interest rate tightening. Now, last Friday, supermarket chain Woolworths said poor weather conditions across key growing regions of Australia, in particular Queensland, would constrict supply of key fruit and veggies. A spokesperson said due to the continued heavy rain and low sunlight in Queensland, we've seen a reduction in supply and quality of truss, gourmet, cherry and cilantro tomatoes. Oh, I love the cilantros. Zucchini, beans and broccolini have also been affected. Now, the company said in an update to customers, we're still seeing challenges with lettuce and berry supply. So while the new crops have been planted, it will take a few weeks for stocks to return to more stable levels. Now, the supermarket chain said apples and citrus are at their peak and pears and whitewashed potatoes are also in strong supply. Woolworths had told customers earlier this month that the supply of fruit and vegetables had been impacted by adverse weather. At the time, the supermarket said recent flooding had pushed back the planting of cos and iceberg lettuce, causing a delay to regular growing conditions. Berry suppliers apparently have also been impacted. Now, analysts have warned that food price inflation is primed to accelerate 
with suppliers approaching the biggest retailers such as Woolworths and Coles with multiple requests for price rises that could push shelf prices to an annual rate of more than 12%. Um, for the March quarter, fresh food prices were actually running faster or at a higher rate than dry grocery and arguably the pressures are intensifying rather than reducing right now on the back of supply. Okay, well a recent survey of supermarket prices showed that Woolworths over the third quarter inflation was running at 4.3% against only 1.4% in the second quarter, while at Coles March quarter inflation was at 3.2% against 1% in the second quarter. Basically all that means is your prices are going up. Price hikes and shortages will encourage consumers to switch, we're told, to frozen veggies and canned vegetables. Ausveg spokesman Tyson Cattle. <laughs> you sure he doesn't work for the meat industry? Anyway, Ausveg spokesman Tyson Cattle said over the weekend a number of factors had shrunk vegetable supplies, including poor weather and floods, with farmers now trying to alleviate supply shortages, but this will take time. Mr Cattle said a lot of that comes down to the weather impacts up in Queensland. Because veggies only take 12 to 16 weeks to mature, whereas a fruit crop, you can wait up to a whole year, essentially because the Lockyer Valley in particular is coping with floods, and that is adding to the well, pressure on supply. All right, well, unfortunately, um, you know, inflation is biting, and they tell us that soaring veggie prices over the coming months will see many of us turning to frozen or canned veggies. What about you? Marcus Paul in the morning. Alrighty, welcome back. Marcus Paul in the morning. Our hotline 0406521250. Follow us on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, and listen, of course, to the Prawncast. Well, let's do a, a little bit of um, arts and entertainment now, shall we? Um, it's hard not to notice there's a brand new biopic out, or will be this week. Um, hot on the heels, of course, of uh, the... Is it biopic or biopic? I think both are right. Anyway, following uh, the wonderful um, Bohemian Rhapsody featuring uh, the story, of course, of Eddie Mercury, and thereafter the Sir Elton John biopic, that was quite good as well, though not as good, I don't think, as as the one on Queen and Freddie Mercury. Anyway, now the story of Elvis has been brought to life on the big screen. Yep, the king, baby. The bloke who plays the king, a young actor, thought he couldn't do it. And he's absolutely packing himself because the premiere is on this week. His name is Austin Butler. And uh, he, oh, he's got the look. I'm having a look at him right now. Look at those sideburns. He's got the, uh, you know, the cheeks of Elvis. He also has the, the lips. But does he have the voice? I think there'd be a lot of um, editing, it, like there was, I guess, in certainly Bohemian Rhapsody, a lot of dubbing in of the original artist's voice. But that's okay. Anyway, it's been a long time since a Hollywood blockbuster has had its world premiere down under here in Australia, and this one has its leading man sweating bullets. Director Baz Luhrmann's reimagining of the Elvis story has its official opening night on the Gold Coast this week, returning to where it was shot during the pandemic. 
It was filmed here in Australia. Now, we're told the red carpet will be top-heavy with movie royalty, including Tom Hanks. Well, Tom Hanks is in the film, of course. Baz Luhrmann himself and the film's young stars, Austin Butler and Olivia de Jong. Butler says he himself is gripped by fear. And he has been ever since he agreed to play the world's most favourite rock and roll legend. Well, it's a tough act, isn't it? And I remember Rami Malek saying exactly the same thing when he was picked to portray Freddie Mercury. Anyway, Butler tells in a new Elvis special issue of Vogue Australia magazine that he had his doubts about taking on such an iconic figure. Heart pounding and this feeling of deep terror, he told the magazine, uh, which apparently is guest edited by Baz Luhrmann. Anyway, Elvis was the first big production to base itself in Australia as the pandemic took hold globally. Despite Tom Hanks, as you know, and we talked about it, he contracted the virus. But production went ahead after a six-month delay and is believed to have injected more than $100 million into the local Gold Coast economy. Okay, well, are you going to check it out? This new Elvis biopic or biopic? I think I will. And as always with these sorts of things, a bit like Tom Hanks in the latest Top Gun instalment, best scene in your local cinema for the sound and the whole vision thing. I mean, unless you've got a, a home theatre set up at home. <laughs> Half your luck if you have. Anyway, I'll be checking it out. I don't mind uh, the music in moderation from the king. And I think, um, you know, because it's an Australian film as well, we probably should all get behind it. And I I hope it does well. I'm pretty sure it will. Marcus Paul in the morning. Okie doke. Well, that's our program for today, this Monday, the 30th day of May. Uh, Getting closer now, uh, of course, to, to winter. As I mentioned in the program, it'll be chilly this week throughout most of Eastern Australia in particular. Darwin, I always thought, would be a nice place to spend winter. (laughs) It's 32 degrees there, rain, hail or shine, 365 days a year, isn't it? Anyway, thank you for your company this morning. I hope you enjoyed the program. I hope you enjoyed the music. If you would kindly give us a subscription to our YouTube channel, we'd love that. It's brand new, Marcus Paul in the morning. I'll put up a couple of uh, other videos again today on our YouTube channel. Uh, um, I was about to say follow it, but you subscribe, don't you? That's what I meant. Doesn't cost you anything. Anyway, Facebook, um, comment today as always. Um, I mean, that's our main go-to at the moment for our feedback from you, and I do appreciate it. Again, thousands of comments over the weekend on the content. So Marcus Paul in the morning on Facebook. If you don't, haven't, don't already follow it. Most of you do, but please do so. Um, follow our Twitter, at Marcus Paul in the morning is the handle. And a little later on today, um, the program will be up online on our Prawncast, which is our daily podcast. And and thank you uh, for those who are following it as well. Um, the followers sort of ebb and flow, but that's okay. Um, we'll try and get as much content as we can up there each and every day. Now, I this is the part that I hate. Again, if you wouldn't mind, give us a bit of support as an independent media um, broadcaster and operator and all the rest of it. Uh, doing this without any corporate help at the moment. Um, Although, if you do want to sponsor the program and sponsor the Facebook page, get in touch with us, Marcus Paul in the morning. (laughs) Send us a message. Anyway, um, our GoFundMe continues. 
uh, which is our fundraising drive, which we started last week. Thank you to each and every one of you who've donated so far. It'll just mean I can give this 110% without, you know, having to do anything else during the day, because that's ultimately what I want to focus on, and that is making this the best program for you, my listeners and my followers. Um, so follow the link. It's up there on the Facebook page, the GoFundMe, uh, which is on at the moment. Patreon, you can help out there as well. We've only got, uh, what, 25-odd patrons. Uh, we'd love to get a few more naturally. So we'll be back tomorrow. Enjoy the remains of today. Follow us uh, up on our socials. Uh, so we're on 24-7, basically. Uh, but we'll be back here on starterfm.com.au on iHeartRadio and tune in from 7 till 9 again tomorrow morning, Australian Eastern Standard Time. Have a wonderful day. I'll catch you then. Bye for now. All right, old Peter, this will get you the goodies.